We are looking today at the end of Mark chapter 2 and kind of heading into the beginning part of chapter 3. Before I read the passage for us, let me state something that I think most of you already know. Here it is. I love golf. I watch golf. I play it. I talk about it. I truly, honest to God, I dream about it too. I, I dream about being on the PGA Tour. I try to get other people to talk about golf with me. And when I fail to do that, I just go and watch it some more. People are excited to go home to watch football after church. I'm excited to go and watch golf. My mom scratches her head and says, how have you become so much like your dad? I don't really know why. But all I, all I know is that I love golf. And you kind of ask why. Most people think it's boring, and maybe it is. And I think if you ask most NASCAR fans, the same thing, they, you know, in their own way. It's fun. It's challenging. It's a great stress reliever. You meet a lot of interesting people. You have good shots. You have bad shots. So you, you're proud one moment, and you're extremely humble the next. And as much as I love golf, there are times where it can drive me crazy. Um, there are times where it is very pretentious. And so if you watch a lot of uh, golf movies, it's all around this theme, typically, of it's a gentleman's game, and only the rich play it, and there's all these sophisticated rules, and how dare a caddy ever try to become a member of this golf club. And it's very much kind of like, um, like the good old boys club. And still to this day, you'll even see a little bit of challenge with the rules of golf. So I'll give you an example of, of times where I find myself watching golf and I just SMH, shake my head. Like, I love golf and all, but this is too far. Um, one of the, see, and please, ladies, do not take this as an offense by any means, okay? But I am so desperate, a lot of times I even watch the LPGA. I watch a women's golf, right? There's no men's golf on. Um, it's not, I'm not saying that women are less, but it's just not as competitive. So I still watch it. But for one of the women's... Um, Majors, which is like a big tournament. Uh, Lexi Thompson, anyone know that? Lexi Thompson, big name in women's golf world. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, maybe a small finger there. Yeah, I kind of know who she is. All right. Lexi Thompson, American. Um, she was in the lead of this tournament, and so she goes down when you're on the putting surface. We call that the green. She uh, picks up her ball, and she marks it, and she kind of does it to her caddy, and they usually will, like, wash it off, get it clean, and she comes back down, and she puts the ball right near the mark and picks the marker up and makes her putt. Well, someone watching TV said, well, man, it looked like when she put her ball down, it wasn't quite where she marked it. It was like a quarter inch off. And they zoomed in, and they called into the tournament and said, Lexi Thompson in hole number 12 misplaced her ball on her mark. You can't really see it, but if you look closely, you could tell she did. So she finishes that round. The next day, while she's in the middle of play, a rules official comes and tells her, hey, yesterday, you misplaced a, 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 a ball on your mark on hole number 12, and we have to give you a two-stroke penalty. And also, because you turned in a faulty scorecard yesterday, we have to give you another two-stroke penalty. And she ended up losing the major tournament by one stroke. And I'm like, are you 
Are you kidding me? And so this was such a big controversy that even, like, it was the week of the Masters, and uh, all the men's golfers were talking about, man, that's horrible. But here's what they kept saying. Rules are rules. And I'm like, no. No. Those are dumb rules, and that makes me hate golf. Are you kidding me? And so they kept showing, like, the replay of her doing it. She maybe like, maybe here's her quarter, and it's, like, maybe, like, a little diagonally off, okay? Like, honest mistake. And I, I, I understand if you give her a two-stroke penalty for that, but giving her a two-stroke penalty because then her card was wrong, it's just, it's just dumb. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got some in my throat. But <clears throat> every once in a while, you'll see in sports, there's some, like, outrageous, egregious call. And I remember, who remembers the days where in baseball you didn't have the uh, video replay where the umpire can go and actually watch the play? So something happened, I forget what it was, but there was some call, at some like, someone was throwing the ball at home and the catcher clearly kind of like got him out, but the umpire called him safe and it changed the course of a playoff game and everyone saw except for the umpire that the dude was clearly out, but he called him safe. And that just rose so much controversy of, like, there should be, like in the NFL, where there's, like, a, a, a questionable call. They go in, they, they go in the booth, and they watch it, and they come back out with their final decision. And baseball, for the longest time, didn't have that. And so every time there's a big controversy in rules, um, something usually happens. Either the people get so mad, and they complain, and they threaten not to watch the sport anymore, and the league changes, or the league is kind of like, no, we're going to keep it the same way. Like, if you think of the NFL for a second, if 10% of the NFL is getting a concussion every year, they're like, man, something about the way our rules are set up needs to kind of change. And so, a few years ago, they started this rule about when the ball comes off a kickoff, if they kneel, does anyone know what yardage goes up to now? If they, what? 25, and growing up, it was the what? 20. The 20. Right? So the rules are always in flux. And let me tell you something about rules. Rules and I don't usually get along too well. I remember when I first moved here, people always joked that I never used my turn signal. I came from Chicago, and to use your turn signal was to give your plan away to the enemy. <laughs> and so I just never used my... And people were like, man, you're just like a rebel. You don't ever use your turn signal. I guess... But if you get to know me, yeah, I, I do struggle with rules. And don't all of us at times get that sick feeling in our stomach when we feel like rules are just rules? How many of us have played games when we were kids with our friends and eventually the game became lame or boring because there was just too many rules added onto it? Yeah, you agree? <laughs> I remember my mom... We played some board game and there would be some technicality and she would get me out. You know, I remember one time we're playing like Monopoly and I just like flipped the board up and (laughs) stormed out. And you you know, you know that that, that phrase I mentioned earlier when they kind of say, well, rules are rules. Usually when you're like the the, the end of that, they're not telling you anything you want to (laughs) hear. Rules are rules. Screw your rules. That's how I feel inside. Sorry, that's a long introduction, I, I know. But um, I say all that because the story that we're looking at today talks a lot about rules. 
And in fact, it's a story in which the Pharisees, the people we talked about last week, are trying to catch Jesus breaking some rules. And Jesus has a few things for us to say about rules. And guys, let me just tell you, before we really look into this passage, um, this passage is extremely relevant for us. Because here's why. Um, in our society, in our world, in your high schools, there is a strong um, opposition to the commands and rules of God. In which the commands and rules of God, I think for a lot of people, feel like the four-stroke penalty induced on someone who didn't mean anything. The rules of God feel burdensome sometimes. The commands of God seem myriad. They seem abundant. And if we don't have a right understanding of the laws and the rules of God, I think we'll be like me as a little kid and mummering uh, under our breath about how we hate rules. So here's the thing. I want us to learn three things about how we should understand the rules of God, all right? Is that simple enough? Structure for you, three things, so descriptive I know, I'm sorry, about how we should understand the rules of God. So actually, let's go ahead and read the passage, and then we'll go ahead and look at those three things. So starting in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, was going to the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, have you ever read what David did? Referring to King David. When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also he gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we'd come to see you in a new light and fresh way that we would not see your commands or your rules as burdensome. Lord, we thank you for this time to look at your word, and we just pray a blessing over it now. Amen. So, three things that we learn from these two stories about the rules of God. And here is the first point. The rules of God are made for our benefit. The rules of God are made for our benefit. So let's go ahead and start by looking at this first story at the end of chapter 2, okay? So, so here's, there's a few things kind of happening here. So one, um, it kind of just seems that the Pharisees are getting really annoyed with Jesus, okay? So if you kind of look at the back of uh, the beginning of chapter 2, you have that story where the guy comes to the roof, right? And so Jesus starts claiming forgiveness of sins over people. That's quite the claim. 
After that, Jesus starts hanging out and dining with sinners and tax collectors. After that, um, Jesus um, isn't fasting with his disciples. And now they're kind of starting to look for some stuff. So Jesus is walking around on the Sabbath. And uh, just so you know, the Sabbath is not Sunday. It's actually Saturday, the last day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. And for a Jew, the Sabbath was like the holy day. It was like, I mean, like you do not do anything on the Sabbath. And so Jesus was, was walking around, and his disciples, uh, they're walking through a field, and they start, they're kind of hungry, a little snack. They grab a few grains or whatever, and they start eating. And so here's the thing. Um, the Pharisees, they see this, and they're like, hey, He's breaking the law. He's breaking God's commands. He is having his disciples. And when I first read this, I kind of thought that they were stealing. It's like, man, like, can I just walk through so-and-so's garden? Like, oh, I'm hungry. I'm going to take this carrot and you know, chomp on this carrot, right? But actually, it was part of the law in which if you were walking through someone's vineyard or grain, you were allowed to take a few grapes or a few uh, kernels of corn or something like that as you're walking through. The law was that you weren't allowed... To work. So if you look at this in Exodus 34, oh, gotta turn it on. That would help, right? And, oh, here we go. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and harvest you shall rest. So that is the law right there, in which, hey, when it comes Sunday through Friday, Man, you work up as much as you want. Even when it's coming to the harvest time, the harvest time, we want to take advantage of every minute of sun that you have. Work to your heart's content. But on the Sabbath day, what? You shall rest. So here's the problem with the Pharisees. We talked about this last week. They began to kind of build up a little bit and a little bit and a little bit more of these little traditions kind of surrounding the law. So here's the question. What does it really mean to rest on the Sabbath? And that was the question they always were kind of concerned about. Okay, we want to make sure that we keep the Sabbath holy. So to make sure that we never, ever, ever break that law again, we're going to come up with a few little rules to help us make sure, kind of like safeguards, so we don't break the law. And one of those was that if you walked more than 800 meters, that was considered work. So 800 meters, uh, that's about half a mile, right? Correct? And so Jesus and his disciples, they, they kind of, they're just going for a stroll. So boom, we got you walking. And two, if you did anything regarded, uh, regarding um, picking grain or harvesting, you were also working. And so what do they say to him? Look at verse 24. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But here's what's fascinating. God's law never said that you can't go for a walk on the Sabbath. God's law never said anything about you can't pick a few grains of corn while walking through someone's field. So what they're actually saying is why is he not living up to the tradition of how we usually obey the Sabbath? And this is where Jesus, I think, is Jesus is clever. Man, I think he's probably the pun master because he just always has something good to say back. Let's look at what he says here. Jesus responds with a story from King David, and he says to them, have you never read what David did? Pause. 
All right, if you're a Pharisee, you have the whole law memorized. You know every story of the Bible front to back. I mean, you think that like some kid who memorized a lot of verses in a one is impressive. The Pharisees, I mean, literally, they could recite to you Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Like, that's insane. I don't know how anyone's brain can, like, absorb all that. And Jesus says, wait, wait, wait. Haven't you ever read? That's like, a little stab. And what does he say? Remember the story of what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. And so the story that Jesus is calling about, you can look it up, is uh, David and his men were super hungry and they were in need. And the custom was that um, every six days, the priest would make 12 loaves of bread and they'd put six in one row and six in the other row. And only the priests were allowed to eat them after six days. And then they would make a new batch, okay? But the story was that David and his men, they needed food. And so they came and they asked the high priest and he gave them the food and they ate it. And Jesus says, hey, look, it wasn't, even though it was unlawful for them to do that, it wasn't bad. And so, in essence, what Jesus is kind of saying to them is like, listen, the rules of God are made for your benefit. They're not made to be some burden over you. The law of the the 12 loaves of bread that only the priest can eat every six days is not such a law that rules are rules. Hey, David, I don't care how hungry you are. I don't care if you're, if, you're, if you're on death's door of starvation. Rules are rules, right? Can, can you imagine how sometimes when you take love out of God's law, it becomes something so ugly and hideous? So Jesus will have none of this. Jesus says, hey, listen, the Sabbath, the, the kind of like the issue that they're dealing with here, is not meant to be something that is supposed to be a burden, but imagine if you lived under the Pharisees. They're saying, hey, if you walk more than half a mile, you're a sinner. You're breaking God's law. If you, if you do any work at all, so to this day, Hasidic Jews do not use electricity. Because if you flip on a light switch, what is happening? Like the electrical part or whatever is creating work. They take do not work to such a legalistic extreme in essence, they do all of their work the day before the Sabbath to make sure that their whole day on the Sabbath, they're doing nothing. And let me just you, that just sounds exhausting. Just to get ready for that day, it sounds burdensome. It sounds like, I mean, I know some friends in certain traditions of their faith, it's like they can't do anything. And this is what Jesus is saying, listen. The rules of God, the commands that sometimes we war against, whether it be the Sabbath or not, are not something that we're supposed to kind of feel this weight and burden to feel, but rather they're made for our benefit. How many of us, when it comes to the rules of sexuality, feel a burden? When we see other people at our school and the ways that they cope, with parties and fun, when it's just a lot easier to have the language and the slang of everyone else, when it feels good to have bursts of anger against your friends or family, 
Sometimes the commands of God don't always feel free. They don't always feel right and natural. But what Jesus is trying to communicate is, listen, every law of God is for your good. It is there for a purpose. It is not there for you to have to serve. It is there to serve you. And then that's what Jesus says, right? Look, look what he says in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so let's, let's talk specifically a little bit about the Sabbath, about this idea of rest, right? So God has inaugurated through his creation that we, as humans, have limitations. What is one of the limitations that we suffer with every single day? Sleep. I used to think in college, like, man, if I didn't sleep, if I didn't have to, if I was like a superhuman, and while everyone else was sleeping in the world, I'm going to get all my homework done. I'm going to have plenty of time to play Nazi zombies. I can work 40 hours a week. I can make time for my girlfriend who was in California. I, I can do it all if I didn't have to sleep. And more than that, speaking of golf, one of my favorite golfers today won a tournament, and it was funny. Uh, he was walking off. The microphone was still on, and he says, I am officially out of gas. My legs feel like jello. That was funny. <laughs> What's he communicating? Bro, I'm tired. I, I, I need some rest. I mean, right? I used to make fun of the NFL. I'm like, Psh, the MLB, they play 165 games a year. Those NFL players, oh, you play once a week for, you know, like, what, 15, 16 weeks? But man, that's violent, isn't it? <laughs> it's like going to war. <laughs> but they need rest. We all need rest. And so here's the thing. When it comes to rest, here's what you should know. that God has created you to have limits. But guess what? You can't do everything. That's, yes, let me tell you something. Your mother is correct sometimes. That Sometimes you just need a night in. That you just need some time to say no to a few things. And I think ever since uh, the early church started, there has been debate about what does it look like for Christians now to healthily obey the Sabbath? Does that mean that we only go to church and we do nothing else on Sunday afternoons, no TV, no nothing? Does it mean that we just pick a few hours once a week and we kind of clear our minds? There, there are so many different views, but, but here are a few things that I think even as a high schooler, you should know. One, Sabbath for us means that we should ultimately always find our rest in Jesus. Like I, I love what um, Jesus says again in verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. So, verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus says, I am ruler of rest. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And I think for, for a high schooler living in the 21st century who is a Christian, what does it mean to have rest? It means for you to take intentional time to find comfort, rest, time away from the world, and spend it with Jesus. Like, listen, I, I do not think that, that rest simply means, like, oh, I had a crazy week. I'm just going 
get some dominoes. I'm going to watch a couple of movies. I'm going to put the Seahawks game on, and I'm just going to escape from the world for the next eight hours because God knows what's coming tomorrow, Monday. Right? I, I, the Christians have always understood that rest in the Christian life means that we make time and attention for hearing God's word in our life, for making time for prayer, for making time for fellowship. And for Christians, that has meant that Sunday has been a day in which Christians meet. It is the day in which they decide to find their fulfillment of the Sabbath. So, uh, in the summary of that point, guys, listen. The rules of God are made for your benefit. And Jesus is saying, listen, your absurd rules about this and that, don't get me wrong, the rules of God are good and they're fine, but they are not to be a burden. There would be something that we realize, God has made this for my good. When you find yourself disagreeing with the Bible's understanding of how sexuality should be exercised, it is you warring against God, but rather God is saying, I put this in your life for your good. When you, when you look at any rule of God and, and you want to shake your finger at it, in essence, you are telling what God has said it to be good and deciding what is good is for you. Let's look at this next story. The rules of God never forbid doing good. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he'd heal him on the Sabbath. And so now they're being extra sneaky. They are purposely watching him. So again, here is the trajectory of chapter 2. First, Jesus goes around asking, telling people he could forgive sins. Then he's hanging out with like the scum of the scum, the tax collectors. And then he is uh, not fasting, which he's supposed to be fasting. And then he's just doing whatever he wants to do on the Sabbath. So now they're really trying to like, let's see what this guy does. And so they kind of, they're, they're watching him to make sure they get some ammo against him. And what's the issue? There's a guy with a withered hand. And again, they, they want to accuse Jesus of something. And so at this point, you have to understand that, that their understanding of not breaking the Sabbath was so skewed that they said, you could only go to a doctor if it was um, a matter of life and death. So you could only get medical help and not break the Sabbath if, if you were dying. So a man with a withered hand, his life's not really in jeopardy. Right? So Jesus heals this man. In their mind, oh, he broke the Sabbath. He can't be this great Messiah like we thought he was because he doesn't even care about the Sabbath. And so Jesus feels this trap. And look at verse 3. He said to the man with the withered hand, come here. So imagine you're in a big crowded room in the synagogue. So Jesus could maybe go to the corner really quick and find this guy with a withered hand and kind of when no one's looking, say, all right, you're healed. But he knows that they're watching. And he's like, stand up for, I'm going to show, I don't care who sees this. I want everyone in this room to see what I'm about to do. And now Jesus, the master trapper, asks them a few questions. Verse 4, he said to them, hey, Pharisees are trying to trap me. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? So here's what Jesus is doing. Hey, I got a question for you. Is it permissible on the Sabbath to do good 
or to do really bad, to kill someone. Now, now here is how these people have to answer this question. So if they say it's permissible to kill on the Sabbath day, they clearly know that's wrong. Like, obviously, they're not going to say, yeah, it's permissible to kill on the Sabbath. Go, go for it. Do, do harm. Do evil. Do whatever you want. No. They know that's bad. But then, if they say what Jesus says, is it permissible or is it lawful to do good, when Jesus heals this man, they have to agree that what he's doing isn't wrong, and thereby admitting their own accusation of trying to trap Jesus. And so, when he asked that question, what, what do they say? At the end of verse 4, but they were silent. You see, he caught him in a no-win situation. Imagine if we, uh, I remember a few years ago, we went to Mexico, and we did church on the beach, or what we call it church, and really it was just like we sang two songs and did devotions, and there wasn't really a sermon or anything like that. But, but imagine um, someone got really mad at us at the mission trip and said, hey, Aaron, how do you guys call yourselves Christians going down to Mexico and serving the poor when you don't even go to church on Sunday? Like sometimes when we're heading back from a trip on Sunday morning for a retreat or something like that, we don't go to church because we're on the way back from a trip. What if, what if so we get back to church and they said, Aaron, uh, we don't think you're a good youth pastor anymore because you didn't take the students to church on your trip. That, that's in essence the kind of question that they're asking Jesus. How, how do you say you're doing good when you're, when you're not even doing this? And this is where Jesus is really helpful to us. He stands up front. He asks them this question. And verse 5, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. I think some people, when they hear this fact that Jesus was filled with anger, that might be off-putting, right? Isn't anger bad? And I, and I love this because, again, we have to realize that Jesus was a man, and he had emotions, and he was like us. He, he reasoned and he thought and he could smell things. And, and he had righteous anger. And righteous anger is not the same as unrighteous anger. Righteous anger is that you are mad, concerned, um, distressed about something that is unjust. It is okay to have righteous anger towards human trafficking. It is okay to have righteous anger towards some kind of legislation that you feel tramples the rights of the oppressed. And Jesus says that here. But let me, let me say something for you. The reason why no one would ever say to a mission trip going to Mexico to build homes that how dare you not go to church is because the law is not the means to an end. Is because God never forbids doing something good on the Sabbath. If God's law told us that we can't do anything good on the Sabbath, I would say pick a new religion. God is never opposed to anyone doing anything good. Therefore, if a mother has sick children and she feels this pressure that I still have to go to church because I have to make sure that I obey the rules... She misunderstands the law. The law is not there to kind of guilt her and to pressure her. 
But rather, is it not a good thing for a mother to stay home with her sick children and take care of them? Is it bad at times to miss church for an opportunity to serve the poor? Is it an okay thing at times to, to willfully miss church if we have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who's open? The law is meant to give us the rules of God, I'll say. The rules of God are meant to give you guidance, to show you concrete ways that you can love your neighbor. So, so many times I, I hear people war against all of the, the rules and the commands of God. And here's what I'd say the rules of God promote good deeds, they don't take away. And so Jesus says, listen. Of course I'm going to do good on the Sabbath because God never forbids anything good to happen. Um, last point, and I think this is maybe the point that's most relevant to us. Um, the last point is this. The third thing we learn about the rules of God. Um, the rules of God are not legalistic. The rules of God are not legalism. Now let me describe legalism because what we just got was two classic, classic examples of legalism. Legalism says that God is impressed by my obeying the law. Legalism says that if I obey the rules of God, therefore God accepts me. And therefore a very legalistic person or a legalistic church puts to the front uh, this pressure, this burden to perform in the Christian life. Now how dare you break the Sabbath? How dare you not rest on the Sabbath? How dare you try to do something good on the Sabbath? What, you don't read your Bible? Well, man, if you read your Bible, then God would really think highly of you. Wait, wait, wait. You don't have perfect attendance at youth groups? Legalism says that God is more happy with you when you don't swear. Legalism says that God loves me a little bit more when I obey more. And so here's the thing. I think sometimes there's always a reaction to stuff, right? We hear something, we don't like it, and so what happens is it pushes us this way. And so sometimes, here's what happens. You get Christians on both sides of the scale. They kind of say, hey, legalism is bad. Just telling people to do things, telling people, hey, you better go to church, you better read your Bible, you better marry a Christian person, you, you, know, you better do all these things, and if you don't do it, you're a bad person. And then they, they kind of feel this, you know, if you drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do, how dare you, right? I think Tim's laughing, right? I heard that. I heard that. I heard the whole talk about how far is too far. Just, just laws, just rules. And so people jump to the other side and they say, hey, I can do whatever I want. God's going to forgive me. I can get drunk on the weekends, have sex with my girlfriend. Grace. Praise God. Amazing grace, right? And somewhere in the middle, we, we find the gospel. We find Jesus. And then that's always the balance. Jesus and the law. The gospel and legalism. But something, let me tell you something. I read this quote a few weeks ago, and this guy said, I will never apologize for calling people to do what Word calls them to do. In essence, it is never legalism to call people to do something that God's Word has explicitly told us 
to do. It is not legalistic to say that you should save yourself for marriage. It is not legalistic to say that you should watch your words and how you speak and have an uplifting tone of voice. It is not legalistic to say that you should honor, not just obey, but honor your father and your mother. It is not legalistic to say that you should consider those around you more than yourself. You see, anything that God's word has clearly told us what to do, that's not legalism. But legalism takes rules around and saying you can become greater to God by simply just obeying. And the rules of God are not that. And guys, listen, I war with everything in me every Sunday night when I come here to not give you a message of burdensome. I just go and do. Like, hey, go, go be really good kids in the world. Just make sure along the way that you don't talk bad. Just make sure that you don't make any mistakes, that, you, that you're always here at youth group, that you make sure that you're keeping up with your, your daily devotions. And, and if you do that, then God's going to bless you and you're going to be great. Because here's the thing. You are going to make mistakes. Right? All, a lot of us at times, we will break the rules of God. All of our different various ways. But, but here's the message of, of grace. That Jesus is our good. And that Jesus had to die because he knew that we weren't good enough. And because Jesus now is our Savior, because he is our Lord, we want to please him. And therefore, when we understand Jesus for who he really is, do you know what we understand? We understand that the rules and the commands of God there for our benefit. We understand that God he is not forbidding us to do anything good. And we understand that we don't obey to get. We obey because of what has happened to us. And so what ends up happening is the Pharisees in verse 6 went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him. There's not much known about the Herodians, but clearly they were at some political group around Herod who was all sorts of bad. And so the Pharisees were literally ganging up with their enemies to get against Jesus. Here's why. Because legalism wants to dictate and control. It just wants to put you in a little box. If you obey this, then you get that. Let me tell you something. The gospel, Jesus, is not like that. Jesus offers you freedom and grace. God offers you forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. Now let me just say a few takeaways from all this stuff. I know I've said a lot, right? Maybe not even the best, but let me just say a few things. One, what does this mean for you? Never, ever, ever think of God as a dictator barking rules at you. Consider God as a benevolent, loving Father who desires to for everything to be for your good. And so his rules, everything that he's telling us of how we should live according to his word is not him pointing his fingers. It is him saying, I want the very best for you. And God, our Father, who has made everything seen and unseen, he knows. And so we don't begrudge the commands of God. Yes, that sometimes it is convicting and it's hard and it's challenging and there may seem like no one else is doing it, but never understand God to be someone we just says, try harder. 
is a loving father. Two, point, enjoy a Sabbath. Appreciate the fact that God has made you with limitations and know that that Jesus is to be your rest now. As a high schooler, it is okay to just rest, to not feel the pressure of always going, 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 of having to perform and getting the best grades and doing sport after sport, but to take time to realize I I am a human who needs time to recoup, (coughs) to charge my batteries, to make time to hear God's word in my life. Like how many times in my life I would have never taken the time to reconsider and reorient my life back to Christ if I didn't come to church or youth group. And third, be people of grace. Don't be people who who bark orders and try to make everyone look like you. But rather, I mean, it's a number of passages that I could read, but I'm running out of time. Practice hospitality. Um, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other just as Christ forgave you. Put on love. So many different things of which the New Testament calls us to live in grace, to, to pour out grace, not rules. And so... When I consider rules being rules, when I consider that at times in my own life I struggle with rules, I pray that when we come to this word, that we would understand that the rules of God are for our good. That they aren't limiting us from doing good, but they're actually encouraging us to do good. And third, that that there is always more grace with God. That we will fall short of his rules. That we will disobey. That we will at times, whether by ignorance or by willful omission, disobey the commands of our Lord and Savior. But there is grace. And may we be people who never shy away from the commands or the laws or the rules of God. And as Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. May you be a high schooler who is not bored with God's word, who is not burdened by God's word, but someone who uses God's word to give light to your dark path. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is our rest. And Father, I pray that we would more and more desire to live a life that glorifies and honor you. Lord, I ask that as we head into small groups in a few minutes that you give us hearts that are willing to engage, that you would give us um, Help to be honest and to consider the person next to us. And Lord, I just pray that you would continue to grow us step by step. Help us, Lord, to to know that even when we're not working on our growth, you are. That you are always faithful to us. That there is always more grace in Jesus. Help us to live by these truths, we pray. Amen.